Good morning once again. Good to see you here this morning. I have been uh, looking forward to this sermon ever since I planned the sermon series a couple months ago. Uh, We've been taking the month of January to look at suffering in the Christian life and how we are to relate to that, how are we to respond to those things, what the Bible tells us about these realities. And this morning, we're going to bring that series to a close by looking at a message entitled, From Suffering to Glory. And this is one of the things that I love so much about the Word of God that we do not only get uh, the bad news, in a sense, if you can call it that, but the Bible promises both, yes, that we will suffer on account of Christ, on account of sin, on account of the fallen world, but that is not the only reality that the Bible gives us. It also tells us that on the other side of that, post-suffering, that there is glory and restoration and peace and eternal life and all of the benefits of being united to Christ. And so I am just eager to get to this this morning with you. This is a very valuable message, I think, not because of what I am going to tell you, but because of what the scriptures tell us about this. What we are going to see this morning about the connection between our suffering on earth and the glory that follows is something that can sustain you, something that can motivate you to obedience and faithfulness, and something that can ultimately be for you an encouragement and a hope and a promise that you can hang on to. So there's so much good that we're going to see this morning. It's going to really bring this series to a close, I think, in a helpful way. As we've gone through these last, well, this is the fourth week, so the last four weeks, we've seen some pretty heavy things at times. We've seen the Bible promise us in no uncertain language that when we conduct ourselves a certain way, when we live according to the word of God, when we follow the instruction of the word, there will be consequences to that. It's been heavy. We've seen things at times that we would probably rather not acknowledge, things that we would rather not accept as biblical truth. But here's the thing. When it comes to studying the Bible, when it comes to not only reading but understanding what the Word tells us, our perception, our feelings, even our experience do not change the truthfulness of the Word. I think we can all agree with that, right? You don't come to the Bible and say, okay, I'm going to believe this is true as long as my experience matches this directly. That's a foolish way to read the scriptures. Rather, the Bible tells us truth that is true whether you experience it that way or not. And I don't say that as a bad thing. That is actually a very good thing for us to know because now when we come to not only the suffering aspect of the Christian life, but the glory aspect of the Christian life, we can know that it is true regardless of your current experience, your past experience. It is true. This is the value of knowing the Word of God. So this morning, we're going to look primarily at the middle section of Romans 8. So you can turn there as we get going. And we're going to look at verses 15 to 25. And I think that this particular section of the scriptures is probably one of the clearest teachings on this very thing. The connection 
that the Bible tells us about between our suffering and what follows that in the Christian life. So we're going to look at these 11 verses. We'll jump around just a little bit, but mostly this is where we'll be. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 and follow along. I'll read verses 15 through 25 or so. Romans eight fifteen, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Would you pray with me as we begin? Lord, it is hard at times to not be completely bogged down by our circumstances. It's hard to lift our heads and our thinking over the current situation that we find ourselves in. And Father, we confess that in those times, the problem does not lie with you. It does not lie with your word. It relies with our sinful hearts that are so inwardly focused that all we care about is the moment. I pray that this message this morning would serve as a gentle hand to lift our face, to lift our heads above what is going on and to see what you have promised for every believer on the other side of this life. We do not live this life, Father, in hopes that we just make the best of what we can make it and then that's it. There is a perfect and endless eternity of joy and pleasure and enjoyment and being with you that awaits every person who by faith will receive the gift of salvation and be united to Christ. And so God, this morning, press this deep into our hearts. We need... We need to know that this life is not meaningless, this is not pointless, but you have ordained every step that we take so that we are made more into the image of your Son and that we come closer to you. So God, do this work this morning. I can't do it. We can't do this together. We need your help. And so as we look to your word now, would you come and would you teach us and would you mold us into the image of Christ and God, give us hope Hope that looks beyond the mess that we may be in right at this moment and hope that motivates our obedience, our faithfulness, and our joy. So we thank you and we ask for you to come and teach us now and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.
Now, as we look at these 11 verses, we're going to see a couple of things that are guaranteed to every Christian. A couple of guarantees that Paul gives us, both of the privilege and perhaps the consequence of being brought into the family of God. Last week during Sunday school, I taught on the doctrine of adoption. And we made kind of a big deal of the fact that adoption means that God, in addition to justifying us, forgiving sin, giving us the righteousness of Christ, making us acceptable before him, in addition to that reality, God brings us into his family. He relationally connects us to himself so that we now have access to the blessings of sonship. God is not just a cold judge figure who, who makes courtroom decisions and then you leave and you go live your life. He brings us into his family, giving us all of the benefits of being a son, not just an acquaintance. And that is very true. That is the glory of the doctrine of adoption. But in this text... Paul tells us in Romans 8, not only the blessings of adoption, but he also tells us the reality that we will suffer on account of this new name, this new identity that we have been given. In fact, verse 17 goes beyond merely suggesting that we might suffer for Christ when Paul gives a conditional clause to our inheritance. You see that in verse 17? He tells us, yep, you are indeed heirs with Christ, provided what? provided that you suffer with him, in order that you may be glorified with him. That's what's called a conditional clause, meaning the end result, the benefit, the thing that we look forward to is only made possible if this condition is met. So Paul is not saying it's one or the other. He's telling us it's both things. Yes, there is tremendous blessing and benefit to being brought into the family of God, to being adopted into the brotherhood, the family, the, the household of God. But if we are ultimately to receive all that sonship is, there is a qualifier in a sense. And Paul says it very clearly in verse 17, provided you suffer with him in order that you also may be glorified with him. And I think the meaning of this text was unlocked for me just with one little word. It's the word with. And this is the reason I couldn't use this text last week. Last week we talked about what it means to suffer with Christ. That he is with you, alongside of you. That's not what this word means in verse 17. This is the frustrating part about language and translating languages. Oftentimes, at least in like New Testament Greek, there's maybe three or four words that are all translated with the same English word. And it's, it's at times kind of a thing to get over. And so I want to just explain this. I'm not going to get too technical because nobody has time for that. But it'll really help in the understanding, I think, of what Paul is saying here. So in verse 17, when he says, provided we suffer with him, the word that he uses is sumpasco. So it's got the S-Y-M-P prefix on that. That's going to make sense in a minute. Which means to experience pain jointly or to experience the same kind of pain. Now, you've heard the phrase sympathy pain, okay, which means you feel the same kind of thing, like maybe a husband says to his wife when she enters the ninth month, boy, I have sympathy pain, honey, I really know what you're feeling, and he should immediately duck because the, the swing is coming. He doesn't understand, he doesn't know, but that's the intention, saying, I feel what you're feeling, right? Well, the word sympathy 
In English, the root of that in Greek is sympasko, to sympathize, to feel the same kind of thing. So what Paul is saying is that the suffering that he has in mind here, the suffering that gives legitimacy to our Christian faith, to our sonship, is a kind of participation in the suffering of Christ. You see that? So provided we suffer with him, in like manner to him, then we experience the glory and the reward and the things that come after. We, in a sense, prove our sonship when we suffer with Christ. But I think it's important to put a little qualification here or maybe to emphasize not only the suffering aspect of our sonship. That's Sometimes, as, as believers, we really hammer on that. Right? We say, oh man, if you're a Christian, life's going to get hard. And it does get hard. No one's denying that here. But... The reality that as sons we suffer with Christ is not the only reality that the Bible tells us. It is not one-sided in the communication that we see in the Scriptures. Being united to Christ means that what happens to Him happens to us. What He receives, we receive. So He dies, we die with Him. He's raised, we're raised to newness of life. He inherits all that the Father gives him, likewise we too, if we are united to him by faith, will inherit what he has. And we see this pattern all over the New Testament. Suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. And we see this especially with Jesus, the the forerunner of our faith, suffering before he is glorified. So as his brothers and sisters now, as we have been brought into the family, Paul says this early on in our passage, we didn't receive the spirit of fear to fall back into slavery, but we received the spirit of adoption. We have been brought in to the family of God. And as the brothers and sisters of Jesus, spiritually speaking, we follow the pattern that he lived out in his life. Suffering, then glory. We're going to see this more when we come to the table in a few minutes. But here I think another clarification perhaps is necessary. When we talk about suffering with Christ, suffering in like manner to Christ, what we do not mean is that when we go through uh, trial and difficulty and loss and pain and all the things we can lump into that category, when we do that, we are not perfecting what Jesus did. The sacrifice of Jesus, his suffering, his travail, his death was sufficient for the redemption of his people. So when Paul uses this qualifying statement, he says, you're going to get this provided that you suffer with him. What he is not saying is that Jesus' sacrifice earned you 95% of what you need, and now if you suffer enough, you too can be glorified. It's not at all. That would fly in the face of dozens of texts that talk about the sufficiency of Jesus. So don't, don't hear this language about the conditional clause and say, okay, well, if, if I'm going to inherit eternal life and, and glory, then I guess I have to, what, suffer uh, this much or, or this much. It's not adding anything to what Jesus did. His redemption, his atonement, his uh, salvation that he accomplishes for his people is complete. So the suffering that we go through as Christians is not purchasing for us something, it is proving something. Does that make sense? So we're not going to look at this text and say, okay, if I do enough 
horrible things, if I, if I go through enough awful circumstances, then the redemption of Jesus will be complete and I'm redeemed. It's not the case. Christ offered a complete atonement on the cross that totally satisfied the wrath of God. So when we suffer with him, we do not earn anything, but we prove our sonship. Now move on to verse 18 of chapter 8. This is the continued theme now as we see, uh, for I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now in this verse, he uses a different word for the word with. He does not use sumpasco. It's not a sympathy. It's not experiencing like pain. The word he uses here means to place alongside or or to, to raise to the same level. So you see how that impacts what we're saying? When he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth placing at the same level as the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not worth trying to equate these things because you can't. And what that tells us is not the minimization of the suffering. Now, Paul's not saying, oh, that doesn't matter. What he's saying is that the glory that is coming is so much greater that there is no way to to try to balance these things out and put them on the same level. He's telling us when he thinks about all of the things that go on as a result of our sin, as a result of a sinful world, as a result of other people's sinning against us, all those things, they are not worth comparing. They're not worth holding next to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I just think even this one verse in verse 18 offers so much hope and encouragement. Look at the way that Paul talks about it. Paul calls them the sufferings of this present time. What does that mean? I mean, yeah, it means that this is what we go through now, but do you know what he means by saying this present time or this present age? He means they're not going to exist in heaven. He means these are former things. He means that when Christ comes or when Christ calls us that all of these things that we experience that we would categorize as suffering in the present time will not continue. Isn't that hope-giving? Isn't that an encouragement? I know that you experience this because I experience the same thing. It is so easy to just get bogged down and just feel like you're trudging through and trudging through and and struggling with the same foolish, sinful actions that you thought you would be far beyond by now and you're not. And Paul says, all of those things, they're temporary. These are sufferings of the present time. And if you are united to Christ by faith, they don't continue. Isn't that great news? Isn't that hope? That we aren't going to just continually bring this with us into eternity. And maybe it'll be a little less, but we're still, no. They are sufferings of the present time, meaning they're gone when you're with Christ. We'll see that in the closing scripture we read together. But I think Paul's desire and in writing this section is the same desire that I have in preaching it, that I want you to understand this connection. I want you to see that the Christian life and all of the things that go with it, all the effect of being adopted into the family of God, nothing is meaningless. Nothing is without cause. There is no random thing in the Christian life. 
as much as it might seem futile and meaningless and you have no idea what it's doing, it's doing something. There is nothing that is wasted in this life. Nothing. God is far too wise. He is far too good. He is far too generous to us to let us just go through things for no purpose. No event in your life of faith is meaningless. Nothing. And Paul, I, th- I think this connection that he has between suffering and glory, between what happens here and what's coming, the connection is so strong in his mind. In fact, he, he really intensifies this argument. If you go over just a couple books to 2 Corinthians 4, I'm going to read just a couple verses. You can turn there if you want to. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul increases the intensity of the argument that he's making here in Romans 8 by saying not only is there a connection, like a, like a vague uh, string tied on one of these and tied on one of these, but he says that there's actually a way in which your suffering here is producing something in glory. It's not just that there's a little bit of a similarity and one is a little worse and one is a little better, but there is an inseparable connection. Here's what he says. This is 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 16. Paul says, so then we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is, here it is, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, But to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Like I said a minute ago, it it is so hard at times for us to see our struggles, our difficulties as doing anything other than being an interruption to our life. (laughs) No one likes to be inconvenienced, do we? I don't start my day going, boy, I hope my day goes horrible. I hope I get inconvenienced all day and I have a really frustrating day. That would be awesome. No one does that. And it's so hard at times to see your life and your circumstances as accomplishing anything other than frustration. But it is. The Bible tells us it is. Nothing is mundane. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is meaningless. In fact, the things... You see this connection when Paul says in verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of glory. Do you know what he's saying right there? Do you know what that means? Paul means that there is a peculiar kind of glory, a peculiar kind of enjoyment of the presence of God that you will experience in heaven that you would never have known were it not for the suffering on earth. You got a category for that? Do you know what he's saying? Paul is saying that everything, everything has meaning. And not only meaning, but a productive value. (laughs) Doesn't that change the way you think about things? Shouldn't that change the way that you approach sickness, loss, frustration, relational hardship, broken marriage, broken relationship with kids, wayward family, all of the things that we endure as Christians when we do it with Christ is working for us. It's producing something. It is a factory that produces a product. And that product is a unique aspect of glory in eternity. 
This is something that no human being could design. This is only the design of God, and it is remarkable. And notice also in this, in this 2 Corinthians passage, Paul doesn't tell us that the, the light momentary affliction in this world will just be followed by, I mean, that would be pretty great, I guess, if, you know, if we knew, okay, it's, it's hard here, but, but in some way it's going to be better. He goes way beyond that. He goes way beyond the acknowledgement to tell us it's working for you. That's another good translation that these light momentary afflictions are working for us. A weight of glory. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. This will change the way that you think about your hardships. This is why I said at the beginning that I can say with total confidence that nothing in the Christian life is meaningless. Nothing. So, back to Romans 8. God is accomplishing things through our suffering, whether Paul says they're not worth comparing, whether he says they're working for us something. The point is that there is design in these things. See, God doesn't toy with us. He doesn't, he doesn't poke and prod at us just to see what happens. Boy, I wonder what they'll do if I do this. That's not the way God is. He doesn't bring us through fire and water just to see what happens, but he does purify us through fire, yes? He does cleanse us through water. He does lead us through the valley of the shadow so that your experience of glory will be uniquely sweet because of what you have gone through here. Again, no one else designs this way. Only God designs this kind of a thing. And I am so thankful that he does. So, the other thing to notice about what Paul is saying is that he does not say that the suffering produces something that you are now going to see or that you are now going to take advantage of. He's, he's creating contrast. right? You notice that in both of these passages that the connection between suffering and glory is a present suffering and a future glory. It's not that if we just do the right things that everything will be fine now. You may never see the outcome of your faithfulness in suffering in this life. You may never see it. You may never see the restoration of that relationship. You may never see the bonding together of things that have been broken. You may never see healing in the sense that you desire. But that's not what it promises. The promise is that what happens here and now is working something then. And that's what motivates us. That's what keeps us going. That's what prevents us from despair. That the future glory, the revelation of redemption that God has given, that is going to be when we see it and what we see. Now, this brings us to the last part of our passage in Romans 8. So far, we've seen Paul labor the point that there is indeed a connection, that there is, there is a greater glory to be looked forward to, to be anticipated, and now, something that he does in these last verses, uh, 19 through 23, is he introduces non-human creation into the mix. So follow along. Let's read uh, verses 19 to somewhere, 23. Start in 19. We'll see how far we get. Romans 8, 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul introduces now this, this non-human element. Okay, when in these, what, seven or so verses, he uses the word creation five times. And here, when he uses this, it is in contrast to, or, or in addition to, humanity. Do, do you pick that up as we read through these verses? It is referring to non-human, non-rational parts of God's creation. Inanimate, animate, maybe another way to say it would be the totality of the created universe minus human beings. You tracking with me? That's what Paul is calling creation in this section. And when he speaks of it here, he personifies it. You know what that means? It means that he attributes to the creation human or personal attributes like feeling or anticipation or longing. Rocks don't long for anything. They're rocks. But Paul is personifying it here, which gives us, I think, a little bit of an indication as to what exactly he's talking about. What is this glory that is to be revealed to us? What is the thing that we are longing for as the sons and the daughters of God? That's what Paul is getting to. Now, I think when he does this, when he personifies the created universe, he is communicating a truth. He's illustrating a point and he's giving us something true. There's kind of two things, I think, going on here. First of all, he's making a point and he's telling us that the effect of sin is so widespread. The the effect of the fall, we trace back to Genesis 3, the fall into sin is so universally felt that all of the created universe has been affected, ruined, whatever word you want to stick in there, by the effects of sin. This is kind of hard for us, I think, to grasp at times because we, we look at what God has made and some of it is so breathtakingly stunning. When you see things like the Grand Canyon or the Rocky Mountains or a huge body of water, whatever it may be, and you think, huh, as beautiful as this is, it's been subjected to sin? What would that look like without the effects of sin? And that's, that's what Paul is trying to drum up in us, is this feeling of anticipation for, I know things can be good right now, you have no idea what it's going to be like when sin is removed. Okay, So he personifies this and tells us, look, the effect of sin is so far-reaching that even the gravel has been subjected to futility. Everything. But not only that, he tells us something true. He tells us that when we, image bearers, sons and daughters of God, when we experience this final glorification, this perfection, this redemption, it will be so powerful, so effectual, so universal in the demonstration of God's power that even the non-animate creation of God will in some way benefit from that. Everything is going to be transformed in the new heavens and the new earth from 
from rocks to rodents and mountains and flowers and everything is going to be transformed and renewed and perfected. And isn't that just wild to think about? I love thinking about this. Now, you got to be careful. You can start to kind of go down some rabbit trails and start thinking about, oh, I wonder if I'll have my MacBook, and I wonder if I'll do this and that. Just settle down with your MacBooks, okay? The point is that everything is going to be perfected. Primarily God's children, but the spillover into the created universe is something that we should long for. So look at verse 22. Paul says that the creation has been groaning. In the pains of childbirth. What does that mean? Why does he insist on using strange imagery when he's telling us things? Well, Jesus actually kind of interprets this, I think. I'll read uh, John 16, 21. Don't have to turn there. You can if you want. Just write it down. In John 16, Jesus is talking about some similar things, and he says this. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, pain, because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the pain for the joy that a human being has been brought into the world. Okay. So now pair that back with what Paul says, that that all of creation is kind of mm, waiting and groaning and saying, come on, when's it going to happen? What is he talking about? He means that the effect on the created world of sin is so great that even Inanimate creation, non-intelligent creation, in some ways, are waiting. They're waiting. They're waiting. For the, for what? What are they waiting for? I got the answer. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, this is talking about now the sons and the daughters of God, image bearers, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There it is. What is the big deal? What is being waited for? What is the sense of anticipation for? It is for redemption. (laughs) It is for everything to be made right and to be made perfect. And you know, you know what he's doing? When Paul tells us that not only we ourselves, but the creation is going to be perfected, he means that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will experience and enjoy both our perfected bodies and a perfected creation. What is the good of a perfected and glorified body without a perfected and glorified creation? This is what we hope for. This is what we long for. Listen, it is not wrong to look forward to the redemption of your physical body. This is what Paul is talking about. Now, of course, we understand, right, as believers, that this is a side effect, as it were, to being in the presence of Christ. That is the ultimate goal. This is penultimate. As we look at the redemption of our bodies and the ability and the capacity to enjoy all that God is, it's not wrong to be motivated by that. Paul was motivated by that. He says all the creation is motivated by that. Listen, don't ever let anybody tell you that eternal life is spiritual only. Of course, it's partially that. 
But God is going to redeem you if you belong to him. And he is going to redeem everything around us so that you finally have the capacity to enjoy him and enjoy his creation and enjoy one another. Edwards has this great quote that I'm going to butcher if I try to quote it. But he's talking about the fact that the excellency of Jesus, the excellency of his person, is what every redeemed person will enjoy in eternity. And to the degree that we enjoy creation, food, fellowship with one another, whatever, we will enjoy all of those things because we enjoy them in Christ. And so don't hear me say this about looking forward to the physical part of this and think, oh, well, I guess he forgot about Jesus. No. No, this is only made possible because of Christ and because of what he's done. I'm just saying it is totally appropriate to look forward to the redemption of this old tent. Don't you look forward to that? Don't your knees hurt? Your back hurt? Now again, this is not the primary good of eternity, but it just you can't get around it in this passage. That all of the things that we experience as a, as a result of sin in this world are going to be reconciled. Everything's going to be fixed. And that just brings us tremendous joy. So Paul is giving us this text and he gives it to the Romans and he says, have hope, have hope. And that's why he says in the last couple of verses here that in this hope we were saved. Now he says this really obvious statement, I think, uh, what is this, verse 24. In this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. I don't stand here and say, boy, I hope I have a pulpit to set my Bible on. I do, it's right here. I don't have to hope in this, it's here. But the point of him saying this is the hope in which we were saved is to give us this, this forward look. Our salvation is forward looking. And part of the reason that he says this, I think, is to remind us that we should not seek out heavenly reality in a sin-infested world. It's not going to happen. So don't get frustrated when you live your life and you're like, oh, nothing's going right. Everything goes wrong. That's how I act at home. The point is that this is not going to happen now. We look forward. Who hopes for what he sees? The point is you don't. But Paul says we hope for what we do not see. Or if we go back to the 2 Corinthians passage, he says we look to the things that are eternal, not the things that are temporary. So I want to end by telling you, hope in what is yet to come. It is totally acceptable and good and right for us to look to the future and to say, oh, I cannot wait for that to come. But understand that it is a hope. You are not going to experience the full effect of redemption here. And what that means is that now as you live your life and as we live together with one another and as we sin against one another and as we let each other down, this gives us a category, I think, for that in some ways. That's not an excuse to say, well, I'm a sinner. Sorry, I guess I screwed everything up. We should, we should work at that. We should try at that. But be patient. 
with one another. That's what Paul says. But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. God will, in his time, redeem everything. And I just want you to know that. So that you don't lose heart now, so that you don't spin your wheels and think everything is meaningless and there's no point to anything, there is a point. And the point is that God is refining you, he is building you, he is preparing you for what he has in store. I want to close now with one text. Revelation 21. Just four verses, but I think this is, this is a great summary of what we've seen. And this, this fills in maybe a little bit more of the gap uh, that we see. I mean, for everything we don't know about eternity, we know a couple things. And this is one of the passages that helps us in that understanding. So just listen to this, and we'll close with this. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Former things. Things of this present age, they're gone. Swallowed up in the victory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. In this hope we were saved. Father, thank you for giving us a hope. Thank you for giving us a confidence. Thank you that you do not leave us to just wonder why we experience the things we experience, but your word fills in for us the gaps. And God, every one of us, I'm, I'm sure, at this moment could list off things that are painful, things that are hurtful, things that are disappointing, failures of our friends and our family, things that genuinely cause us pain. But I am so thankful that your word tells us that every one of those experiences is working for our good. And you, in your awesome wisdom, have ordained our existence so that nothing is without meaning. So God, help us to lock on to this. I pray that we would understand this connection between our suffering now and the glory that is to be revealed to us. You are preparing for us a unique experience of the presence of our Father as we go through this life. So God, give us perspective, give us hope, and give us patience. These are things we so desperately need. And I ask that you would do this, not, not only for our peace of mind, God. This is not just so that we can finally be at ease and, and understand what's going on, but you are glorified in this. 
In the Psalms you say, call on me in the day of trouble and I will help you and I will receive glory and you'll get the help. That's that's the whole paradigm of the Christian life, Lord, that you are glorified when we are weak and depend upon you. So as we go through these things as a church, as individuals, Lord, help us to keep this eternal perspective that nothing is wasted in our lives, but rather it is working for us in experience of glory. And in the meantime, Lord, we hope for this, but help us to hope with patience as you work to refine us more and more into the image of Christ. So thank you, Lord, for this month that we've had to look at these things. Would you now work this into our hearts so that we are strong, steadfast, immovable, Lord, strengthen and establish us in your word. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As we come to the table this morning, I was thinking about this pattern that I just mentioned, that in the New Testament and in the whole Bible, we see this from suffering to glory, from suffering to glory. And Christ perfectly exemplifies this, I think, especially in the cross. And so as we come to the table, I'm just going to read one passage in Hebrews 12. Familiar to you, I'm sure. Hebrews 12 says this. As we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus lived out this reality. He lived out this pattern of suffering to glory. And when we come to the table every Sunday at Grace, we celebrate that reality. We celebrate the fact that Jesus did not bypass suffering to get to glory, but he endured so that you and I, if we are united to him by faith, could also endure so that we are glorified with him. So I just want to take a few minutes and let you meditate on this. Christ suffers and then is glorified. And in his suffering, the the work, what he produced in that is your redemption. So as we come to the table, remember. Remember that Jesus, the forerunner of our faith, set this pattern for us. That we could now come and celebrate his suffering and look forward to his glory. (laughs) Let's pray again. Father, thank you for setting these things up. Thank you, Lord, that we can come and intentionally now remember the suffering of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we look forward to the glory that is yet to be revealed. In the meantime, we look back to the cross with thankful hearts, and we look forward to the redemption that you have promised. So, As the elements are passed and we have a moment now to reflect, would you bring to mind things that we need to bring to you? Don't let us waste this time, Lord, if there is unrepentant sin and things that need to be brought to light, Lord. Help us to do that. And by your grace, assure us that when we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we thank you for the cross and we thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen. You do not have to be a member here at Grace to take communion, but you do need to be a member of God's family. So if the blood of Christ has washed you of your sin, we invite you to partake of this meal. 
And if you'd hold the elements till we've all been served, we'll eat and drink together.